All right, welcome to the Medicine Podcast. This is Dr. Christopher Hernandez, your host. And now that we covered how to do a paracentesis in the last episode, let's talk about how to do a thoracentesis. Okay, as I mentioned in my last episode, I recently finished a two-week interventional radiology rotation during which I performed many paracentesis, thoracentesis, and lumbar punctures. So I've decided to devote some time to transcribing the details of these procedures while they're still fresh in my mind. We talked about how to do a paracentesis in quite a bit of detail in the last episode. In this episode, I'm going to cover how to do a thoracentesis, and I'm going to spend less time on all the little things, since many of those details are the same for paras and thoras. In this episode, I'll just try to highlight all the details that are distinct, that are unique to thoras. Please be advised that this episode will probably be of little interest to you, unless you'll be doing thoracentesis someday, or maybe you already do them and you want to get better. Okay, let's get started. Once again, the most important part of the procedure is also the very first step, namely choosing your spot. And here we already have a significant difference compared to paras in that for thoras, you want to look through the chart first and see what imaging the patients had done. This isn't strictly necessary, all you really need to do a thora is the ultrasound, but if there's imaging available, why not review it? And it can be quite helpful. A chest x-ray isn't the greatest source of information, but it will at least tell you which side the effusion is on, and it'll give you a sense for how big the effusion is. If you have a CT scan of the chest, though, then you've got some amazing data available. I would strongly recommend scrolling through the various views on the CT until you become proficient in their interpretation. Many attendings are most comfortable interpreting a chest CT from the transverse view, but in my opinion that's the least helpful view when it comes to orienting yourself for thoracentesis. Check out the sagittal view and scroll through it. It can actually be a little tricky to distinguish the left lung from the right in the sagittal view, but just remember that the aorta runs down the left side of the body. If you pay attention to the aorta and the lay of the heart, then it becomes pretty obvious which lung is which. The sagittal view actually gives an amazing view of pleural effusions, which tend to be posterior and caudal. Effusions tend to accumulate in dependent positions, so gravity will basically force all the fluid to collect underneath the lung towards the back of the body. The sagittal view provides excellent information about the size of the effusion, and thus the amount of room your needle will have to work with when you're coming in from the back. Obviously, the CT scan will have to be somewhat recent to be relevant, and it's also not helpful if they've already had a thoracentesis done since the scan, but if it's recent, it's extremely helpful. After processing the sagittal view, I'd recommend checking out the coronal or frontal view as well. Not only will this view help you confirm the lay of the effusion or effusions, but it will also provide the best view of the rib cage. The ribs are going to be very important for the thoracentesis, and everybody's ribs are angled a little differently, so I think it's worth spending 15 seconds scrolling back and forth, visualizing which ribs you might want to go between. You're generally going to want to go 
low in the rib cage, of course, where the effusion tends to be nice and thick and the risk of hitting lung is minimized. The CT is just a convenient way to get oriented. Don't forget that the coronal CT view is the reverse of what you'll be seeing when you're looking at the patient's back because by inalterable historical convention, all imaging is presented as though you're facing the patient. So just be sure to reverse the image in your mind if you're trying to visualize what you'll actually be doing with the needle when you're approaching the patient from the back. Okay, so you've looked at your imaging if it's available. If not, no big deal. You've got your ultrasound. Let's proceed with the true step one of the actual procedure, that is, taking the ultrasound and confirming that there's a good spot to poke. Just like in the paracentesis, if you don't see a pocket of fluid you think you can hit, then obviously it would be unsafe to attempt the procedure, so you abort the procedure right there. No consenting the patient, no opening up kits, you just stop right there. So let's see if there's a good fluid collection. There's usually no real need to check both sides of the patient's body. Typically, you at least have an x-ray available, so you know which side of the body the pleural effusion is on. You put on some regular non-sterile gloves, gel up the curvilinear slash abdominal ultrasound probe, and throw it between some ribs near the bottom of the rib cage. Assuming the patient isn't morbidly obese, it's usually easy enough to palpate the ribs. This can help you guide the placement of your probe. It's also helpful to angle the probe with the ribs, so generally you'll have it rotated slightly downwards as you go from medial to lateral. You're going to be watching your needle come in from the side of the probe. Whether that's the medial or lateral side of the probe is up to you and may just depend on convenience and which side your dominant hand is on. But whichever side you choose, just make sure that there's a nice juicy pocket of fluid on that part of the screen. I don't want to repeat all the details I mentioned in the para about how to use the probe, but basically make sure it's correctly oriented and go ahead and use your gloved finger to poke in against the patient right where you think you want to come in with your needle. You should be able to see some action in that spot on the ultrasound screen. This is your chance to confirm you've got a good spot. Try to visualize what your needle will look like as it comes in from that corner of the ultrasound screen. While choosing your spot, it's usually worth checking the rib space both above and below the one you have your eye on, just to make sure they don't look better. The main thing you're trying to avoid hitting, of course, is lung, though if you go too low, you may have other organs to worry about, such as diaphragm or liver. Generally, you want to be maybe two or three rib spaces up from the very bottom of the rib cage, Fairly lateral, but not too lateral, maybe halfway or two-thirds of the way off from midline. Usually your sweet spot is going to be somewhere around there. But as always, let your ultrasound guide you and just go where the best pocket is. And of course, as they teach you in med school, the intercostal artery, vein, and nerve run right along the bottom of the rib. So the goal of this procedure is to slide your needle right over the top of a rib to minimize the risk of any injury to those important structures. Palpating the ribs when you can do so is usually the easiest way to determine where they are, but you can also easily confirm their location with ultrasound because the ribs will cast a fairly obvious shadow over the screen when your probe is over them. So as you slide your probe around over the patient, when your view suddenly becomes crappy and obscured, you're likely over a rib. Okay, so when you've scanned around for a minute or two, there's no hurry, and you've thoughtfully chosen your spot, mark it in the same way as we did for the para. 
draw an X or something if you want, but then definitely take the cap of the marker and hold it firmly into the skin for a good five or 10 seconds until a nice deep indentation is made in the skin. This may be a little uncomfortable for the patient, but it's important. Then jam your finger there again to confirm that it feels like the spot is just over the top of a rib. The skin can slide around a bit relative to the ribs, so just make sure you remember where you're really trying to go when the time comes. Okay, so you've chosen your spot. I'm going to skip a fair amount of detail in the coming steps because a lot of it is extremely similar to the paracentesis procedure, including preparation of the kit. Instead, I'm going to focus on the differences. For one thing, the patient is of course positioned totally differently for a thoracentesis than for a para. For a thora, you want them sitting on the edge of the bed, hunched forward and leaning on a little table that you or your assistant will set up for them. We typically give them a pillow to lean on. This slight hunch will expose their back to you very nicely. Make sure they're comfortable because you don't want them moving around during the procedure. And as always, don't forget to raise the bed to a height that maximizes your comfort while you're performing the procedure. Much of the rest of the procedure is very similar. You glove up, you clean the patient, you drape the patient, you prep your kit in pretty much exactly the same way. We expand the sterile field with those sterilized towels for thoras more often than for paras, though I personally find it useful in both settings. The equipment is largely the same, though for therapeutic thoras, we don't rely on suction to draw the fluid. Instead, we have a special auto-locking syringe, the use of which I will describe later on. But during your kit prep, you just want to make sure you have that syringe, as well as all the syringes you might need for labs, just like for a para. Okay, so you have all your gear, the patient has been consented, and you warn them about pneumothorax. You're properly gloved up, the patient's cleaned and draped. The kit's prepared, your lidocaine's drawn up, you're all ready to go. From here, you proceed just like you do in a para. You make a nice blanching wheel with your lidocaine needle, then you attempt to numb up the entrance to the pleural cavity under ultrasound guidance, coming in from the side of your probe and hoping to identify your needle tip by the pleural membrane, then looking for evidence of the deposited lidocaine, which may show up on ultrasound as a swelling or a distortion in that area. Again, don't stress about this step too much. The lidocaine needle is very thin, and as long as you don't go crazy with it, you're unlikely to do much damage. The key is to try to numb a specific tract well, and again, to try your best to remember exactly where that tract is and to retrace it with your catheter needle. All right, so the patient is numbed up. After waiting an extra 15 seconds or so to make sure the lidocaine is kicked in, you make your small vertical slit with the scalpel, now it's time for the main event. Position your probe carefully. Make sure you have a good grip on it with at least a couple fingers splayed out against the patient as an anchor. Thoras are all about finesse, especially if you have a relatively small pocket of fluid to hit. They certainly require much more finesse on average than paras do, so it's your chance to learn to be quite careful. You again have the same options about how to use your catheter needle. That is to say, you could attach a 10 milliliter syringe to the back of it and advance the needle under negative pressure to see the immediate return of pleural fluid when you enter the space. But once again, I would recommend against that technique because you sacrifice too much control of the needle. It's better to get good at seeing your needle under ultrasound guidance and advancing it cautiously and precisely since this will be necessary for the truly difficult procedures when you're trying to do a diagnostic thoracentesis on a very small pocket of fluid, for instance. 
So let's say you're doing it that way, with just the catheter needle. You'll do it essentially the same way. First, you use two hands to introduce the needle into the skin, then get a good grip on the needle with your dominant hand, and use your other hand to place the probe securely. Rotate the probe slightly so that it's aligned with the rib space, and angle the probe slightly towards the needle while also angling the needle just slightly towards the probe. Be sure the probe is right up against the needle too. All these measures will ensure that the needle appears on screen as it advances. The real key, of course, is to make sure that the needle and the probe are aligned correctly so that the two-dimensional plane the needle passes through is the plane you're seeing on screen. And that's something that just takes time to perfect. But the more you do it, the easier it gets. Okay, so you're advancing the needle. You feel a fairly constant resistance at first because you're just advancing through fascia and fat. Hopefully your needle begins to come into view on screen. If not, fan the probe slightly, adjust things very slightly and carefully until it does. For Thoras, unlike Imperas, as you advance, you may actually hit something. That is to say, you might be closer to the rib than you realized, so you might actually bump up against bone. No big deal, just pull back very slightly and adjust your angle upward just a bit so that you pass over the top of the rib. You can always take a second, even while the needle is in and you're in the middle of advancing it, to palpate with your fingers and make sure the ribs are where you think they are. If you still haven't found your needle tip on the ultrasound screen, remember you can use the gently jab forward and backward trick. The resulting linear motion you see on screen should help you figure out at least roughly where your needle is, and then it's just a matter of making fine adjustments until you see the needle tip come into view, if not the entire length of the needle. Once you've found your needle, keep advancing until the tip comes up against the entrance to the pleural cavity, that is, the pleural membrane. Just as in a para, you may again feel a slight increase in resistance here as the needle comes up against the membrane. That may be too subtle a sensation to rely on when you're still inexperienced, but what's usually more obvious and reliable is the tenting of the membrane on the ultrasound screen. You'll see your needle tip trying to poke through. This is the moment of truth. Warn the patient that they may feel a sting, and in a small but swift movement, advance the needle a millimeter or two and push through. You may feel a sudden decrease in resistance as you enter the pleural cavity, if so, great. If not, no worries, just fan your ultrasound a bit if you need to, and look for your needle tip somewhere in the pleural cavity. If you're where you think you are, you should see that very satisfying bright white dot against the anechoic black of the pleural fluid. It may even be more than a dot. If you've positioned your probe and needle well enough, you may see a bit of a line representing some or all of the needle. If you see this in the fluid collection, that's the image you want to save. That also means it's time to check the catheter for a dribble of fluid. Pull the cap off if it isn't already, and look for those clearish, yellow-tinted drops. If you see that, and you've confirmed your location on the ultrasound, then you're definitely in the correct space, and you're good to advance the catheter. Remember, keep the needle where it is. You don't want to advance the needle into the lung. Just advance the catheter. Once the catheter is hubbed, remove the needle and hook up the catheter to whatever tubing you'll be using. 
For our throwers, we have this tubing that leads past a one-way valve. So after you've drawn off all your labs, you can draw up fluid and then inject it back, which sends it off into a bag instead of back into the patient. This is where the auto-locking syringe comes in handy, because instead of drawing up each syringe full of fluid completely by hand, which can eventually get fairly exhausting, this at least allows you to click the syringe into place and let it fill on its own. You still have to pump the fluid out and draw the syringe back yourself, but at least you get to rest for a few seconds each time while the fluid is drawn in. Anyway, just draw out the fluid according to whatever system your institution uses. Some institutions do use suction for this part, though I've heard that there are more complications involved with that method. The real question at this stage is how much fluid to withdraw. If it's just a diagnostic tap, then you merely draw as much fluid as you need for labs generally 360 milliliter syringes or 180 milliliters if you can get that much. If there's a therapeutic component to the tap as well, as there usually is, then you'll essentially want to draw off as much fluid as you can, but with a maximum of a liter and a half or so, and you may need to stop earlier than that if the patient develops pain or a significant cough as they often do. So you watch your patient carefully as you continue to draw off fluid. If they're just coughing a little bit, you can pause for a minute or two and allow them to collect themselves, then continue to draw off more fluid. There can be a fair amount of discomfort associated with the re-expansion of the lung as fluid is drawn off after all. But if they really continue to cough or they have fairly significant discomfort, then that's as much fluid as you're going to get from this tap. Feel free to conclude the thoracentesis at 800 milliliters or 1.2 liters or whatever the volume may be. It's just about paying attention to the patient's comfort. The maximum amount of fluid we usually withdraw in one go is 1680 milliliters, which is the 1.5 liter bag plus the 180 milliliters of fluid we collect in the three 60 milliliter syringes sent off to the laboratory. Alright, I think that's all I'm going to say about thoracentesis. I was a little lighter on detail this time. If you want to fill in some of the gaps, please listen to my prior episode about paracentesis, because many of those details apply here too. But I was hoping to be able to keep this episode a little shorter, and to just focus on the details of what makes a thora a thora. I'm uncomfortably aware that I didn't really tell you what you should do if you really can't find your needle. But I guess I would say if you really can't find your needle, no matter how you try, then really what you should do is abort the procedure or pass the needle over to someone with more experienced hands. Don't go stabbing blindly when there's lung at risk. But this is why we practice with the ultrasound every time, because once you've done it enough, you can always find your needle. And if there's any suspicion at all that you might have caused a pneumothorax, order a chest x-ray. You don't necessarily have to order an x-ray after every thora, though your institution may have its own policy on that. Alright, that's a wrap. As always, please feel free to email me with questions, feedback, or comments at themedicinepodcast at gmail.com. The podcast should be available on many different podcasting platforms by now, so if you like the show, please do leave a rating or a review. It will help other listeners to find it. Alright then, see you next time.